Last week, we continued in the series that we have been preaching on living as a minority community in a hostile world with the topic of joy. We looked at the topic of joy, and we noted that the joy of the Lord is found in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the source of our joy. It is the anchor of our joy. In fact, for the Christian life, it has to be a life of joy because it is a life that is built upon and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so joy is very much fundamental to what it means to be a follower of Christ. It is the anchor of our souls in these very, very uncertain times. This week, as we continue the series, we're looking at a more sobering topic, a much more sobering topic. It'll be this week and next week because all that I feel we must say about this cannot possibly be crammed into just one message. I want to look with you about compassion, the heart of compassion, which is the heart of the Christian, the follower of Jesus Christ, the child of God, the the disciple of Christ, is to have a heart of compassion. It, It is basic to what it means to be a Christian. And I want to start this morning, and I do so with some measure of concern, I want to start this morning by sharing with you some information that you may or may not be aware of that's of a very sobering nature. And it kind of sets up, really, this whole topic of compassion. And I say I do this with a certain measure of of, uh, nervousness because I don't want to Uh, cause someone to become fearful. It's not my objective at all. Certainly sober, for we live in sobering times, and it is important that we be sober, that we be people who understand the times, that know what is happening in the world, that we live in reality and not in some um, bubble uh, of our own imaginations or those that would seek to feed us on truth. An article this past week, I think, did a good job of summarizing some of this, and so I am indebted to this article for the sources that bring it all together. If you have my notes, you have this information in there, and I'll just say to you that there are hyperlinks all salted through this so that you can go and find the original sources yourself if you are so moved to either check or further uh, investigate some of these things. The title of the article was Poor America. Poor America. And here are some of the truths, beloved, of the world in which we live. Last year, a group by the name of Go Banking Rates surveyed more than 5,000 Americans. And in the process, they discovered that 62% of them had less than $1,000 in savings. Last month, the same group, Go Banking Rates, conducted another survey in which they basically posed the same question. This time they 
surveyed 7,052 people, so a larger sample size. And the result of that survey now is that nearly 7 in 10 Americans, 69%, have less than $1,000 in savings. Nearly 70%. When you break the survey information down further, 34% of those surveyed report that they don't have any savings, not even a dime. Nothing put back. And another 35% have less than $1,000. The remaining survey takers, 11%, have between $1,000 and $499, 4% between $5,000 and $999, and 15% more than $10,000, separating them from a major financial need, an unexpected financial need. 34% of Americans, not one single dime to fall back on. The U.S. Census Bureau released numbers a year ago that found that 47% of Americans fall be- below the poverty threshold of about $24,000 of medium household income in a year. 47 million of our countrymen. In 2007, one out of eight children in America was on food stamps. Today, the number is one out of every five. One out of every five. The number of homeless children in the U.S. has increased by 60% over the last six years. According to the group Poverty USA, 1.6 million American children slept in a homeless shelter or other, some other form of emergency housing last year. 1.6 million children. New York City police have identified 80 separate homeless encampments in the city. They say the homeless crisis now has grown so bad it, they're describing it as an epidemic. I saw a headline in the LA Times just the other day that said the problem is growing uh, rapidly here in L.A., also, and I would suggest to you that it is true of virtually every city across the United States. Nearly 41% of all children living in the United States are being raised by a single parent and living in poverty. 41% of all children raised by a single parent are living in poverty. of all American workers make less than $30,000 a year. Half. The government presently reports there are 7.9 million working-age Americans that are officially unemployed. The unemployment figure is now announced to be 5%. It has been, according to the government, declining basically month over month for quite some time. The problem is the way the government calculates the statistics, and that is that once one's unemployment benefits run out, they are no longer counted as unemployed. They merely go off the official register. So there are 7.9 million working-age Americans officially 
employed, and another 94.7 million working-age Americans considered now not in the labor force. You put the two numbers together, and you have almost 1.3 million working-age Americans that do not have a job. Nearly a third of the population. According to a recent Pew survey, approximately 70% of all Americans believe, quote, that debt is necessary in their lives, close quote. Read yesterday, 35% have debt that is now in collection, which means that it is 180 days or more past due. 35% of Americans have debt that has now been turned over to the collections department. That means their payments are at least 180 days past due. At this point, 25% of all Americans have a negative net worth. That means the total value of what they owe exceeds the total value of what they own. They are bankrupt. They are bankrupt. Now, it would be very, very easy for those of us who are comfortable financially to look down on those that are hurting. It would be very easy to say that those that are finding themselves enmeshed in debt and would say that it is necessary for their lives, that it is the result of their own bad choices. It is a result of their own excessive spending habits. And that would be likely true in some cases. Not all, but some. But beloved, to have that approach, that attitude would betray the heart of compassion. It would betray the heart of compassion. It would say to someone who is in trouble, you're getting what you deserve. God would say to us, Colossians 3 and verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Put on a heart of compassion. Those chosen of God, meaning those who God in his mercy and grace and compassion has reached out to and plucked from the gutter and made them children of the living God, You have compassion, for God has had compassion on you. We are in no position to look down on or to judge those who are suffering, even when they are suffering as a result of their own poor and sinful choices. The word compassion carries the idea of kindness. Kindness or showing mercy by relieving sorrow and want. It is an active word. Compassion is an active word. It is not merely pity, but it is the showing of mercy by the relieving of sorrow and want. It is active. Now, beloved, God himself is compassionate. It is his very nature. It is his name, 
It is his name. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The context here of Exodus 34 is that this occurs following the incident with the golden calves. When Israel responded to God's kindness and mercy towards them with with idolatry. And God judged them for their idolatry in the incident with the golden calves, and and he said that he would basically abandon them there. But Moses interceded on behalf of his people, and he poured himself out before God and begged God not to abandon his people. In response to Moses' prayer of intercession, God said that he would continue with the nation. But Moses said, we don't want to go on alone, O God. Basically, I need help in leading this people. Help me. Show me your glory, he says. Show me your glory, God. And God says, no one can see my glory, Moses, and live. No one can see my face and live. What I will do is I will, I will hide you in the cleft of a rock. I will, I will place you in a cave. Some think it's the same cave that later Elijah ran to. And I will place you there in the cave, and I will put my hand over you. Now he's speaking you know, anthropomorphically. He's speaking figuratively here. And he says, I will, I, my glory will pass before you, Moses. Verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Do you want the glory of the Lord? The glory of the Lord is his name. And he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. We're not going to unpack this section, but I want you to notice this. As God proclaims his name and declares his character before Moses, he begins by saying that he is compassionate. It is what it means. It is the nature of God. And because God is by nature compassionate, therefore his people must reflect his likeness. And that we must be compassionate people. It is the identifying mark of those who know the living God that we are compassionate. But beloved, like other spiritual virtues, compassion is something that needs to be nurtured. It grows cold, it grows dull. If we are not constantly working on the nurture of it. So with that, what I want to do this week and next is make four observations about compassion. Four observations about compassion that are of a growing importance to a minority community living in a hostile world. Four observations. We will make one this morning, and then next week the plan will be to come back 
and look at the other three. So one this morning. First observation, compassion was the culture of Israel. Compassion was the culture of Israel. After delivering his people from bondage in Egypt, God entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. As part of that covenant, God established a legal code, a a means by which the society would be governed, both vertically with him and horizontally with each other. Having entered into that covenant, having established that legal, that legal code, that how this covenant community were to live together, God then brought them into the promised land. All right? So establish the covenant, the legal code to govern the covenant, and then bring them into the promised land. That's the order of events. This legal code had compassion at its very core. Compassion in its very core. Turn over to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. And beginning at verse 6. Micah chapter 6. And beginning in verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What is it? That God requires. He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. This is what God requires of you. Compassion was the culture of Israel. In fact, Israel's legal code can be summed up in two great commandments. The first of which is that you shall love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In other words, you shall love the Lord your God with your all. The totality of all that you are. You shall love God. And the second commandment is like it. And it is found in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Leviticus 19 and verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
You remember, Jesus summarized the law of Moses under these two great commandments, right? You shall love God and you shall love your neighbor. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. These two great commandments. Beloved, it is these two great commandments that are the measure of a righteous man. The measure of a righteous man in the the conception of the Old Testament. For example, turn to the book of Proverbs. And begin in verse, or excuse me, chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Beginning in verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Do not withhold good when it is within your power to do it. Chapter 11 of Proverbs, verse 26, excuse me, verse 24, 24 to 26. Proverbs 11, 24 to 26. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds gain, the people will curse him. But blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Reminds me of Joseph in Egypt. Chapter 14 and verse 21. He who despises his neighbor sins. But happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Chapter 19 and verse 17. The one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. The one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. And he, that is God, will repay him for his good deed. 21, verse 13. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. And one last one, chapter 31, the ideal wife, verse 20. She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She extends her hand to the poor and stretches out her hands to the needy. This is the righteous woman. Beloved, it is woven through the fabric, the care for those in need. We have, for example, the illustration of Job. 
Go to Job with me to chapter 1. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That's quite a commendation from God himself, don't you think? Here was a man who was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. This is a righteous man, a righteous man. Well, one of the things that characterized this righteous man, chapter 29, beginning in verse 12, was how he was compassionate upon those in need. His compassion was part of what established him in his community as a righteous man. In fact, the preamble before this, he talks about that basically when he walked into a room, people were quiet because they knew they were in the presence of a righteous man. And verse 12, he says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. Job is saying, I stood up for those who could not stand up for themselves. I cared for them. I cared for them. Chapter 31 and verse 32. Further, he says, The alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. That's the issue of hospitality. You remember, we spoke about hospitality early on in this series and how critical it is. And hospitality is not just baking cupcakes. It is opening one's heart and one's possessions to those in need. This is the measure of a righteous man in the Old Testament understanding. Now God in his law, created a system of compassion. A compassionate system to deal with the troubles that come into every society. What I'm going to talk to you about now, I have preached from this pulpit about three and a half years ago in a series I preached on work. I'm going to preach it again. no trouble to me to preach it a second time, and it is for all of our benefit to hear it. When Israel entered the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, and by the way, that's just an expression for prosperity, a very prosperous land they entered. 
It was under the following terms and conditions. Number one, God owned the land. God owned the land. Leviticus chapter 25. By the way, I was speaking to someone this week about Leviticus, and they were telling me they didn't They had trouble reading it and so forth, and so this is for you. It's not really just for you, but it is for you. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. You are are but aliens and sojourners with me. God makes a very clear declaration that he owns the land. The land is mine. God then gave as a permanent grant of title to each family a certain amount of that land, establishing their basic wealth as they entered into the land. Numbers chapter 27 Numbers 27. Verses 6 and following. I won't read it all to you here, but verse 6, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their fathers to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any man dies having no son, you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And then it goes on to say that if he doesn't have a daughter, then it goes to his brother and then to nearest of kin and so forth. But the point of the matter is that there was a basic wealth unit established by God and given to each family permanently. It was a permanent gift. God could do it because God owns all the land. The owners of the land at that point, those that have been given this land by God, had an incredible amount of freedom with that which God had given them. They could farm it. They could abandon it. They could rent it. They could mortgage it. They could even sell it. But the one thing they could not do is permanently surrender it for either themselves or their heirs. Back to chapter 25 of Leviticus. By the way, we're going to be just... You know, nose it around here, so keep your thumb or something handy. 23, 24, Leviticus 25. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. You can't do that. For the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners on it. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. See, you can sell it, but you can't permanently divest yourself of it. The reason is so that you cannot impoverish yourself or your heirs permanently. You cannot permanently impoverish yourself or your heirs only for a time. Only for a time. Now, because granting such tremendous amount of economic freedom to the people, it's inevitable that through either foolish decisions or difficult circumstances, that people, some people are going to become impoverished. Some people are lazy. They're just not going to work the land. Other people are going to have this crazy idea that if, you know, if they pledge it as, a, as collateral and, and borrow this money and they're going to invest in something else and they know they're going to do well and all of a sudden they don't do well. 
Or maybe there's, a, maybe there's sickness that comes on the family or something like that. There's, there's all kinds of reasons that people become impoverished. When that happened, when someone became impoverished, they were to be helped by others. They were to be helped by the others around them in the society. But only as they worked for it. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, you shall, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You are to leave something in your fields. You're not to go over them and pick every single piece of fruit. You are to leave something for the needy among you. So it's really a genius system, if you think about it. God gave each and every individual in the nation the liberty, the freedom to do well or to fail. But what he didn't do is to provide liberty for people to starve. The society as a whole had a responsibility to the, each other, to one another. Now, specifically, how did it work out? It worked out by providing the opportunity for people to work and to feed themselves. See, the poor have to be helped but they must be helped in such a way that they are not dehumanized in the process. We are made in the image of God, each and every one of us. In the image of God, we bear the, the stamp and imprint of the divine. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that God has made us to work. God works, we are to work. And as we work, we reflect God's glory and demonstrate our humanity. So a system that cares for those that are hurting, that denies them the, the opportunity to work, is to deny them a piece of their humanity. Why didn't God just tax the wealthy and redistribute the proceeds? He could have, but he doesn't. Instead, he requires the wealthy to intentionally leave behind the produce in their fields so that the poor can come along and earn something and feed themselves. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24. Verse 19 and follows. 19 and following. Deuteronomy 24, 19 and following. When you reap your harvest in your field and you have forgotten a sheave in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. 
When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. Listen, you're to leave something in the margins for those who are not well off. Those who are the vulnerable of society. Beyond that, interestingly, God provides a means by which the poor can obtain help by borrowing. There are times when one needs to borrow, perhaps to to purchase some seed, to put in the ground, to get it going. But in order to prevent the person's debt from growing while they're trying to pay it off, and for them thus to become Debt slaves, basically. God says you can't charge interest. You can lend it to them, but you cannot charge them interest for it. Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25. And beginning in verse 35. Now, in case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. You are to lend to him without charging interest. For if you charge interest to him, you will make him a slave. Proverbs 22 and verse 7. The rich rules over the poor. The borrower becomes the lender's slave. This poor person will spend forever trying to pay the interest on the debts and will never Get out of poverty. Beloved, there are many, many, many of our fellow citizens who are debt slaves. They owe so much money they will never dig out. They will never dig out. And something has to be done about it. God ensured that the poor would receive a bonus every seven years. When the fields were rested, then they would have access to whatever sprung up naturally in the field during that seventh year, right? When the, when the fields were laid fallow for a, for a full year, every seven. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lay fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. You're to let the field lay fallow. You're you're not to, to plant it and reap it. You're to let it rest for a year, and whatever comes up, will be for the poor. 
It's their bonus every seventh year to, to help them. Beyond that, God determined that every seven years there would be a year of release for those who were in debt. And what that means is a grace period, a time when payments are not due on the loan. You can't charge interest anyway, but once every seven years, the payments are suspended for a year. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts. This is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. From the foreigner you may exact it, but your hand shall release whatever is yours is with your brother. Interesting. So for those that are part of the nation of Israel, there is, a, there is a payment moratorium every seven years. But if you're outside of the covenant nation, then you don't get a debt moratorium. You have to keep paying. Why? Simply this. If you are outside of the covenant nation, you're not resting your field every seven years. So as you're continuing to work the field, you have the ability to continue to make the payments. And so you must make your payments. But for those that must rest their field, they get a debt moratorium. Beyond that, God required that when a person was hired, particularly the poor, they must be paid at the end of every day. Their wages are not to to be retained by those that are wealthy and, and powerful. They shouldn't have to wait for their money, what they have earned. Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. Listen, payday advance is a big and growing problem in this economy, in this society. People who have to borrow for their, before they receive their next paycheck because they can't make it. And the advance hasn't been given interest-free. Believe me. God granted that the relatives of a poor man could redeem his property if they had the means to do so. So say a poor man has to sell his property to extinguish his debts, to provide enough for his family, pay off a medical bill, who knows? His family can come along and his relatives and they can, they can redeem it, they can buy it back. And, and the person that's been sold to must sell it back to them. Or the poor man himself, if his circumstances reverse themselves, and he now has the ability to buy it back, he has the right to buy it back. I won't look you there, but it's in Leviticus 25, verses 24 to 27. Finally, every 50 years, every 50 years, every seven, seventh Sabbath, there would be what's called the year of Jubilee. 
And in the year of Jubilee, all debts are canceled. All slaves are set free. And the land is returned to its original and rightful owner. Every 50 years, it's all wiped out. They start again. Now, after the year of Jubilee, certainly somebody could make a really bad decision and lose it all over again. Or difficult circumstances could come upon upon them and they could lose it all over again. But see, the beauty of the Jubilee year is, is that you can't permanently impoverish yourself and your descendants, your children. Because every 50 years is going to be a clean start. You get to try again. Some of these ideas are reflected even in our own bankruptcy laws. It's a chance to start again. Now, who were the recipients of Israel's compassion? I mean, this this is a compassionate system, beloved. It's all built together. It works. You wonder what a perfect system of social justice and welfare would look like? What if God himself were to design it? Oh, yeah, he did. And this is what it looked like. Who are the recipients of Israel's compassion? It's those who took refuge in the shadow of his wings. Isn't that an interesting statement? In the shadow of his wings. Go with me to Ruth. Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. This is Boaz's words to Ruth. He says to her in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 12, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Isn't that interesting? May the Lord reward your work. What work? It was Ruth working the fields, right? Work in Boaz's fields. In fact, Boaz is the answer here to his own prayer. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full. The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. God is pictured here as a, as a mother bird who extends her wings over her young to protect them from, from the hostile environment. It's just a word picture. God obviously doesn't have wings He's not a bird. It's just a word picture. But it's a, it's a vivid word picture. It's an understandable word picture. It speaks of, of those that are, in, that are in close relationship with God and part of his covenant community. In fact, it's used repeatedly in the Psalms to speak about those who, who dwell under the wings of the God of Israel. It's a place of security. It's a, it's a place of... of um, of of God's provision for his people. Now, Ruth came under the wings of the God of Israel back in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Where after Naomi's sons had died, and Ruth's husband being one of them, 
Naomi said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Listen, that's an expression of conversion. That's a, that's a statement of one who is committing themselves to the Lord God of Israel. Entering into the covenant community. Entering under the wings of the God of Israel. And then there's the principle of the neighbor. So there are those that have entered into the covenant community, even the Gentiles who enter in. But then there are others who lived in the land who did not enter in. So what about them? Well, for that, we would look to what Jesus has to say in the the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Who is my brother? Who is my brother? Who is my neighbor? What Jesus says there in Luke 10, essentially, is whoever is in need and close at hand, he is your neighbor. He is the one you're to care for. Not the entire world, because you couldn't anyway. Not people that are 40 miles away. Those are close at hand. It begins in the covenant community and then it extends out. As the members of the covenant community come in contact with those that are their neighbors outside of the covenant community. Now we don't live under the law. Praise God. For Christ has come and fulfilled the law. Amen? We live under the law of Christ. But there are principles within the Mosaic law which are foundational to the New Covenant, New Testament teachings on compassion. And next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at what the New Testament has to say about compassion. But but we've got to understand that everything the New Testament has to say is grounded in this Old Testament Compassion system. In fact, if we were to principalize it, just as we close here this morning, I think there are three things we could say that will find their way foundationally into the New Testament teachings on compassion. And here they are. Here's the three takeaways. Number one, stewardship, not ownership of resources. That is that we are a steward over the resources, not the owner of the resources. The resources belong to who? God. Just like the land of Israel belonged to God. So God owns it all. We are stewards, not owners. And that changes our orientation. Second principle. Work, not welfare. Work, not welfare. That is, that we need to think about how to help people in such a way that they retain their humanity by working. That will require us to be creative, to be sure. 
But this principle also is found in the New Testament when it comes to caring for those in need. Just tip the hand, right? Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, if they will not work, they shall not what? Eat. Okay? It's woven right in. Third, generosity, not judgment. Generosity, not judgment. It's foundational on the character of God himself. Very, very easy. Job says it to his accusers. It's really easy for you who are at ease to look down on him who is suffering. And that's true of all of us. It's true of all of us. But God would have us be generous. For he himself is generous. And reach out in compassion for others. May God apply His Word, beloved, to our hearts this morning. Let us meditate on these things this coming week and come back next to hear what else the Word of God has to say about the heart of compassion. Let's pray. Father, we are here this morning because of Your compassionate heart. When we were bankrupt, enslaved to sin, debtors with a, with a debt that was absolutely unpayable. You sent forth your son. He paid our debt fully, completely. He is our jubilee. He has set us free. And unlike the jubilee of the Old Testament where immediately thereafter one could mess it up again, here when we have been set free, we are free indeed. No more ever to know slavery to sin. Our Father, a heart of compassion that reaches out to us mandates us to respond to others in a similar way. If all of the law and the prophets can hang on on the true truths of that we are to love you with the totality of our being, we're to love our neighbors ourselves, or as Jesus would say in, in Matthew 7 and verse 12, that we're to do unto others as we would have them as the, do unto others as we would have them do unto us, the golden rule, Father, then, then we can recognize the obligation we have. We pray for your spirit's help in this. Father, we fight against greed. We fight against a judgmental attitude. We fight against a a sense of complacency and, and comfort. Oh, Lord, people are hurting. And likely there'll be many more. This is a place for your church to shine in our neighborhoods, in our community, within the congregation. May we have the heart of compassion. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.